You are listening to Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement, with your host, Randy Sutton. Welcome to this week's episode of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement here on the America Out Loud Network. I'm your host, Randy Sutton. This this broadcast is going to be a little different, just like the last couple have been because of the unanticipated plethora of of issues involving the coronavirus. Um, there's going to be a great guest that is, is doing amazing things for law enforcement. But instead of me giving you my view from the blue, which I normally do, I'm devoting the rest of this segment to the segment that we call End of Watch, where we're going to memorialize those officers who have passed away just in the last month from line-of-duty deaths. It's a shocking number of, of law enforcement officers. So that's what this show is going to be about, uh, memorializing those men and women who have made the ultimate sacrifice and then a wonderful guest in the interview room. So uh, thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. End of Watch with Randy Sutton. During the entire tenure of this radio show, which has been more than four years now, here on America Out Loud, I have never had as many names to read on our topic called End of Watch. End of Watch is where we pay our respects to the men and women of the profession who have made the ultimate sacrifice and given their lives in the line of duty. And I have never had so many names to read. So I'm going to begin, and we're going to just go through all. And this isn't all. These are just the names that are listed on uh, the website, Officer Down. There are more names due to the uh, coronavirus. The first is Chief of Police Terry Engel, Hampton Police Department, Illinois. Chief of Police Terry Engel was killed in a single vehicle crash while responding to a 911 call at 6.45 p.m. He was traveling northbound on Illinois Route 84 when his vehicle left the roadway and struck a tree on 180th Street. Chief Engel has served with the Hampton Police Department for more than two years after having served with the Black Hawk College Police Department for 35 years. Police Chief Terry Engel, Hampton Police Department, Illinois. End of Watch, Saturday, April 11th, 2020. Second is another Chief of Police. Chief of Police Robert Seelock of the Aliquippa City Police Department in Pennsylvania. Chief of Police Robert Seelock died from complications of a major asthma attack following a foot pursuit on March 26, 2020. He had joined after other officers who were involved in a foot pursuit of a wanted subject. Shortly after arriving back at the police station, he suffered a severe asthma attack. He was unable to catch his breath and collapsed after his emergency inhaler was ineffective. Fellow officer immediately radioed for help and he was transported to a local hospital. He remained under intensive care until passing away on April 11, 2020. Chief Seelock was a U.S. Navy veteran, served with the Aliquippa Police Department for 23 years. He was scheduled to retire later in the year. Chief of Police Robert Seelock, Aliquippa City Police, Pennsylvania. End of watch, Saturday, 
April 11, 2020. Deputy Sheriff Jeremy Ledoux, Charleston County Sheriff's Office, South Carolina. Deputy Sheriff Jeremy Ledoux was killed in a vehicle crash near the intersection of Savannah Highway and Dobbin Road at approximately 1.40 a.m. He was on patrol when another vehicle collided with his patrol car. Deputy Ledoux was not wearing a seatbelt and he suffered fatal injuries. The other driver was also killed in the crash. Deputy Ledoux had served with the Charleston County Sheriff's Office for 14 months. He was provided by his parents and his sister. Deputy Sheriff Jeremy Ledoux, Charleston County Sheriff's Office, South Carolina. End of watch Monday, April 13th, 2020. Sergeant Clifford W. Martin Sr., Chicago Police Department. Sergeant Clifford Martin died as a result of contracting COVID-19 while on duty. Sergeant Martin has served the Chicago Police for 25 years. He was assigned to Unit 610 Bureau of Detectives, Area Central. He is survived by his wife and three children. Sergeant Clifford W. Martin Sr., Chicago Police Department. End of watch, Friday, April 10, 2020. Deputy Sheriff Jeff Hopkins, El Paso County Sheriff's Office, Colorado. Deputy Sheriff Jeff Hopkins died after contracting COVID-19 while on duty at the El Paso County Criminal Justice Center. He was serving at the jail's intake when he had confirmed exposure to other employees who were symptomatic and later confirmed to have COVID-19. Deputy Hopkins has served the El Paso County Sheriff's Office for 20 years, survived by his wife and parents. Deputy Sheriff Jeff Hopkins, El Paso County Sheriff's Office, Colorado. End of watch, Wednesday, April 1st, 2020. Police Officer Jose Fontanas, Boston Police Department, Massachusetts. Police Officer Jose Fontanas died as a result of contracting COVID-19 while on duty. Officer Fontanas has served with the Boston Police for 29 years, was assigned to District E-13. He is survived by his wife, four children, and one grandchild. Police Officer Jose Fontanas, Boston Police Department, Massachusetts. End of watch, Tuesday, April 14, 2020. Captain Jonathan Parnell, Detroit Police Department, Michigan. Captain Jonathan Parnell died as the result of contracting COVID-19 while on duty. Captain Parnell served with the Detroit Police for 31 years, was assigned to the Homicide Unit. He is survived by three sons. Captain Jonathan Parnell, Detroit Police Department, Michigan. End of watch, Tuesday, March 24, 2020. Deputy Sheriff Bud Fabrakanak. I know I butchered that name. Montgomery County Sheriff's Office, North Carolina. Deputy Sheriff Bud Fabrakanak died as a result of contracting COVID-19 while on duty as a school resource officer. The deputy contracted the virus at the beginning of the small outbreak of the virus affecting school employees. The deputy has served with the Montgomery County Sheriff's Office for 14 years, was assigned the school's resource officer for the county middle school and high schools. He had previously served with the Candor Police Department. He is survived by his wife, five children, parents, and two brothers. Deputy Sheriff Bud Fernakunak, Montgomery County Sheriff's Office, North Carolina, end of watch, Tuesday, March 31st, 2020. Detective James Traver Kirk of the Stanton Police Department, Kentucky. Detective James Kirk 
suffered a fatal heart attack following a struggle with an armed subject. He had responded to back up other officers dealing with the non-compliant subject. After running to the officers after a struggle ensued before the man was taken into custody. The following day, Detective Kirk had gone to the Powell County Courthouse to obtain a search warrant on an unrelated case. As he was leaving the courthouse, he suddenly collapsed outside of the building. He was transported to a local hospital where he was pronounced dead. Detective Kirk had served in law enforcement in Powell County for 18 years. Detective James Traver Kirk, Stanton Police Department, Kentucky. End of Watch, Tuesday, February 11, 2020. Officer Brian Leith, Indianapolis Police Department, Indianapolis, Indiana. Officer Brian Leith was shot and killed while responding to a domestic disturbance call at 1803 Edinburgh Square shortly before 3 p.m. A subject inside opened fire through the apartment's closed front, striking Officer Leith and a female resident of the apartment who was standing in the outside hallway. Both were taken to a local hospital where Officer Leith succumbed to her wounds. The subject was taken into custody. Officer Leith was a veteran of the National Guard, has served the Indianapolis Metropolitan Police for three years. She is survived by her three-year-old son and her parents, who both served with Marion County Sheriff's Office. Officer Brianne Leith, Indianapolis Metropolitan Police, Indiana. End of watch, Thursday, April 9, 2020. Sergeant Joseph Spinoza, South Point Police, New York. Sergeant Joseph Spinoza died as the result of contracting COVID-19 while on duty. Sergeant Spinoza has served with the Sands Point Police for 19 years. He is survived by his mother. Sergeant Joseph Spinoza, Sands Point Police, New York. End of watch, Wednesday, April 15, 2020. Police Officer Justin Putnam, San Marcos Police Department, Texas. Police Officer Justin Putnam was shot and killed when he and other officers responded to a domestic assault incident in an apartment complex in Hunter Road at approximately 7 p.m. As the officers entered the apartment, they were ambushed by a male subject with a rifle. Officer Putnam was killed, two other officers critically wounded. The subject committed suicide after shooting the officers. Officer Putnam has served with the San Marcos Police for five and a half years. Police Officer Justin Putnam, San Marcos Police, Texas. End of watch, Saturday, April 18, 2020. Probation and Parole Agent Caitlin Marie Cowley, Louisiana Department of Corrections. Probation and Patrol Agent Caitlin Cowley was killed in a single vehicle crash on Millerville Road Interchange in Baton Rouge at about 6.30 p.m. The crash occurred after she left an assignment assisting the Louisiana Correctional Institute for Women with inmate security at the Our Lady of the Lake Hospital. Her vehicle left the roadway, struck a tree, causing her to suffer fatal injuries. Agent Callie has served with the Louisiana Department of Corrections for three years, previously served with the New Jersey Juvenile Justice Commission. She is survived by her husband, parents, and brother. Probation and Patrol Agent Caitlin Cowley, Louisiana Department of Corrections. End of watch, April 20th, 2020. Police Officer Christopher Eric Ewing, Smyrna Police Department, Georgia. Police Officer Christopher Ewing was killed when his patrol car collided with a drunk driver at the intersection of South Cobb Drive and Oak Drive at about 11 p.m. The collision occurred when the other driver turned left in front of the officer. The drunk driver was arrested and charged with homicide by vehicle, driving under the influence and tampering with evidence. 
Officer Ewing was a U.S. Air Force Reserve veteran. He had served with the Smyrna Police for two years and recently applied to be part of the agency's DUI task force. Police Officer Christopher Eric Ewing, Smyrna Police Department, Georgia, end of watch Monday, April 20th, 2020. Detective Alex Ruperto, Union City Police Department, New Jersey. Detective Alex Ruperto died after contracting COVID-19 while on duty. He has served the Union City Police for 21 years. Detective Alex Roberto, U- uh, Union City Police Department, New Jersey, end of watch Thursday, April 16, 2020. We are on track to have the deadliest year in history for law enforcement line of duty deaths. May all of these men and women rest in peace. There's something very important I want you to do for me. If you've been listening to the Voice of American Law Enforcement for any time, you know that we are very dedicated to the law enforcement community here. I would like you to go to a website. It's www.thewoundedblue.org. I want you to read about how we at this organization are aiding injured and disabled law enforcement officers. If you are a law enforcement officer, and you have been injured or disabled, and you feel forgotten and alone, this is why we exist. We have a fully trained peer support team, all made up of police officers who have been shot, stabbed, beaten, run over, screwed up, and screwed up. They know what you're going through, and we exist for you. You are the part of the Blue family, and you deserve to be treated with respect and dignity. Unfortunately, many Police agencies and cities do not treat their officers with respect and dignity when they are injured either physically or emotionally. So go to thewoundedblue.org. If you are a citizen and you want to help, please check out how you can join the Wounded Blue. And if you're a police officer or have been, exist for you. So check out thewoundedblue.org. Now, I would also urge you to see our film. It is on Amazon, it is on iTunes, it's the Microsoft Store, it's pretty much every platform you can imagine. It's called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. You would be shocked at how the men and women of this, you know, the law enforcement community in this country, many are being treated with such disrespect. Many people, most people, even cops, believe that if you are severely injured in the line of duty, you're going to be taken care of financially and emotionally. In many cases, that is not true. Please watch the film and help the Wounded Blue. I have a couple of special announcements. Now, I want you to put in your calendar right now, October 17th, 2020. I want you to put that down because I want to see you in Las Vegas. Because we have a hell of an event being planned right now. It's called the Brothers in Blue Bash, Las Vegas. Now, what exactly is the Brothers in Blue Bash? It is the largest celebration of law enforcement unity and pride in the United States of America. You know, uh, law enforcement was cheated out of its Police Week celebration this year because of the virus issues. Well, America is going to be back, and so is Las Vegas. And so we've chosen October 17th to be the gathering time for 
American law enforcement to celebrate uh, their unity and their pride, as well as honor those who have made the ultimate sacrifice. But we not only want law enforcement to attend, we want those who support the American law enforcement officer to come as well. There's going to be there's going to be a great dinner. There's going to be cocktails, of course. There's going to be some amazing speakers, some great surprises. There's going to be an incredible silent auction and live auction of, of hundreds of signed uh, musical memorabilia and sports memorabilia, uh, uh, guns. There's going to be all kinds of stuff being auctioned off. But mostly this is a time to celebrate. And uh, there's going to be uh, music. There's going to be entertainment. Uh, you got to be here. So how do you get the tickets or buy a table? The tickets are only $90 a piece. You're never going to get a dinner and an event in Las Vegas for $90 a piece. You can get a table of 10 for $850. Uh, if, you don't, if you don't have 10 friends, gather it. Gather your police, your police friends. And get donated to your police agency. But uh, you want to be here for this event. It's going to be amazing. October 17th. How do you get tickets? Easy. Go to Facebook. The Brothers in Blue Bash, Las Vegas. And the tickets are available there under Eventbrite. Now, if you would like to become a sponsor of this and get the eyes of thousands and thousands of cops across the country on your uh, product or your company, uh, contact me, Randy at thewoundedblue.org. That's Randy at thewoundedblue.org. All of the proceeds from this event go to support the Wounded Blue, the National Assistance and Support Organization for Injured and Disabled Law Enforcement Officers. October 17th, I expect to see you here in Las Vegas. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. As we celebrate our four-year anniversary, thank you for making it all possible. Well, should it news deliver truth and inspire us to reach higher? With blogs, podcasts, video, and 24-7 talk radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We are the vision of the voices, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. 
With me today in the interview room of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement, is Pat Cullinan. Pat is a 27-year law enforcement veteran. He is also the state rep for the Southern States Police Benevolent Association. And uh, he is also very, um, very committed to a new endeavor called Valor Station. Valor Station is a, um, is a uh, part of the foundation called the Hale Foundation. Um, and and uh, the president of that, Cliff Richard, has come up with a, a tremendous idea along with Pat uh, to help first responders who are in crisis. Pat, thanks so much for joining me on uh, Blue Lives Radio. Thank you, Randy. I appreciate you having me this morning. Absolutely. So let's talk about, first, let's talk about your police career and some of the things that you have seen and been involved in that, um, that might have led you to, you know, this, your, your commitment to Valor Station. Sure. Yeah. So I, um, I'm a second generation uh, law enforcement officer. My dad proudly served here in the city that I'm from, Augusta, Georgia, for 42 years. And so I knew growing up that I wanted to be in law enforcement. And so I got in law enforcement uh, 27 years ago and have had a fantastic career. But, it, you know, it has, like so many other men and women in this profession, it's been a roller coaster of uh, good and bad things. Uh, the, probably the first 11 years of my career, I had really, really filled up my backpack with, uh, I like to refer to it as a bunch of rocks put in my backpack. You know, some people refer to it as a bucket that you fill up. And, you know, I'd been involved in uh, a line of duty death where I was on the scene of one of our officers that had been shot and killed, um, had been involved in a standoff with one of our officers that was off duty involved in a domestic dispute. And he ultimately ended up pulling a shotgun on uh, some of my partners who had to use deadly force along with just the cumulative stuff that we deal with. And, you know, the first 10, 11 years of that, I just dealt with that stuff on my own. You know, there was a lot of things that I would sit around my house in the evening and I would think about, or during the day if I was working night shift and, a lot of these things would bother me, but I was afraid to talk about them because I didn't want to be labeled as being weak and that I couldn't handle it. With the wheels spinning in my head, I was looking for uh, ways to slow the wheels down. And I ultimately ended up going from being a social drinker to, you know, drinking and having good times, partying with friends to being a drinker for survival, just to slow the wheels down and be able to cope with a lot of this trauma that I've been dealing with. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, we know the story, you know, um, in law enforcement, unfortunately, historically we've led in everything bad. We've led in, you know, addiction, uh, divorce, domestic violence. There's so many things that, uh, you know, we experience once we get into this profession, if we're not healthy mentally and we don't have the uh, coping skills. And so 11 years into my career, I was already uh, divorced twice, um, was raising a uh, son as a single dad and was doing more drinking than I was parenting. 
And the crazy part about it, Randy, was I'd go to work every day, and I was never late, and I never missed a day of work, and I was on top of my game at work. I was a lieutenant on patrol and um, had a great shift that made me shine, and nobody at work had a clue. Nobody had a clue. It wasn't until I walked through the door of my house that I sat there and I battled these demons. And it was a three year battle that uh, nearly cost me my life because I ultimately ended up crossing a line that I never thought I would. And that was becoming suicidal. I absolutely believed that I would never be somebody that would contemplate suicide, much less attempt it. And I became that person. And no one, no one at work had any clue. No clue no clue whatsoever because that was my escape. You know, I could put on that creased uniform and I'd stand tall and proud and put a smile on my face. And I loved what I did. I've always loved being a law enforcement officer. And that was my escape. That's where I could go get away from reality. It seemed like, um, of course, while I was there doing that, I was still putting, you know, rocks in my backpack and there was still things happening in my career but I would fool everybody. I was a great actor. And then I'd go back home and I'd try to deal with it on my own again. And my counselor ended up becoming Jack Daniels. That was, that was your counselor. Yeah. Yep. I, I, under, I understand. I understand. And, and you, and you were deep in that for how many years? Three years that I was really deep into alcoholism that I can, you know, 100% say that I was off the rails and I had become uh, suicidal and was drinking alcoholically uh, on a regular basis. I didn't drink every day. And so that was one of my big struggles. I thought to myself, well, in order to be an alcoholic, you certainly have to drink every day. Number one, number two, you shouldn't be able to hold down a job and continue to climb the ladder like I had been doing. And so I struggled with that for a long time. And I knew I needed help, Randy, but I also truly believe that if I asked for help, that I would be washed out of the profession that I love so much and had worked so hard to uh, have a successful career in. So I just refused to tell anybody. And, and, that, and that fear is very real in, in many instances. I mean, the fear of asking for help, depending on the agency that you work for, um, that can be a career ender. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I come from a large agency and, you know, I never had seen anybody, never had heard of anybody that had uh, asked for help for anything mental health wise or substance abuse wise. So I didn't have anybody ahead of me that had been an example that I could say, okay, well, the department supported, you know, he or she, and, you know, they salvaged their career. There was none of that. And so finally, I just, you know, I got drunk enough one night that I decided to uh, call the sheriff at three o'clock in the morning at his house. And being a lieutenant, you know, I'm sure that he probably thought that I was calling because of something that happened at work and he needed to be notified of it. But the fact of the matter was I was off duty and I was drunk at home in my chair. And I told him that, and I told him that everything, you know, was fine at work. There was nothing going on that I was off, but I needed help and that I was in a crisis and I fought this for a long time and didn't think I could fight it anymore. And 
you know, he was really supportive on the phone, but I thought to myself, well, you know, he's an elected official. He's a politician. And so of course he's going to tell me that he supports me and he's going to uh, tell me whatever I need to hear at the moment. But I truly believed that once I got back from getting help that, uh, that he would just wash me out. And I went off, I voluntarily uh, checked myself into a civilian uh, treatment center for alcohol and drug addiction. And at that point, I was taking uh, some pills, you know, all prescribed like Ativan and um, some other uh, anxiety medicines. And But the problem with that was I was washing them down with so much alcohol that it was making it so much worse. And so I went and checked into that treatment center and successfully completed the program and showed back up to work a much healthier deputy and was called into the sheriff's office. And I knew that the boom was going to be lowered on me that morning. And the sheriff told me, he said, I want you to know that I'm proud of you, that the department supports you and we're going to be here for you. And everything that I thought was going to happen, Randy, none of it happened. I got nothing but love and support from my agents. That is amazing. That is, that is so um, encouraging to hear uh, because, you know, as, as, uh, as a law enforcement veteran myself, I've seen quite the opposite in many instances. So to hear that your, that your sheriff, um, you know, supported you with uh, empathy and, and the department support, that's really encouraging to hear. So how, how, did, how did things progress after, after you came back? So things were going great. You know, everybody uh, was very supportive uh, at the department and I never felt like I was being labeled as weak. As a matter of fact, they made me to feel like I was strong for asking for help. So that helped me in, you know, in my recovery. And so moving forward, I started, you know, putting all the pieces in, of the puzzle back together in my life. And, you know, like I said, work had never gotten out of sorts. My personal life had really gotten out of sorts and finances had gotten out of sorts. And I started putting all that stuff back together. I've become a good uh, father again, where I was spending time with my boys again. And instead of spending time sitting in my chair drinking and unfortunately, uh, after about three months of that, I thought to myself, I said, you know, everything's pretty good. And my finances are back in order. Me and the boys are doing a lot together. Everybody at work, you know, uh, is proud of me. I don't think that if I had a beer or a Jack and Coke that I would drink like I used to. And even though I had been told that I'll never be able to successfully drink alcohol again, I had to try it. And so I went back and made a drink and off to the races I went, Randy. And it was the worst 18 months of my life. I thought I had been miserable and suicidal prior to going off to treatment. Um, it went to a level that I never, never expected and wouldn't wish on anyone. Is that, is, is part of that because you, disappointed yourself to the point where um you you had you had you know been in recovery and then and then you you failed in that recovery 
Is, is, yep. is that why things got progressively worse? Yeah, I think a lot of it was guilt and remorse, definitely. You know, that guilt and that remorse set in. And then now I went from somebody that didn't have to hide my drinking to I was actually hiding it because I didn't want my friends, coworkers, family to come by my house and see me drinking. And because I listen, I was able when I went back and drinking, I was able to drink what, what I call like drinking like normal people, because the majority of people in this world can drink reasonably. Um, and I was able to drink reasonably for a long time in my life, but I crossed that line at some point and I always drank to get drunk and I was able to drink reasonably for maybe a week. And then it was right back to drinking the way that I used to and probably accelerated. So now not only has the guilt and the remorse set in, but I'm hiding my drinking. So I didn't want to be drinking at the house. So a lot of times I'd find myself checking into a hotel just so I could binge drink and somebody not come by and find me uh, intoxicated. Wow. I took my son in July of 2003 and I went down to Savannah and my intentions were to look for a job and look for a place to live and, and move my oldest son and I down there. My youngest son was living with uh, my ex-wife in Augusta. And so I knew that I'd still get him on the weekends and, I took my oldest son Chase with me and while I was down there, my mom called me and she had not called me in several days, which was very unusual because through good and bad, my mom was always my biggest fan and always would check in on me and always would give me the support and love that I needed. And you know, mamas know, they know when things are good, they know when things are bad. And she called me while I was down there and she said, I just want you to know that Chase, Chase is my oldest son. She said, I just want you to know that Chase is not going to be on this ride with you anymore. She said, uh, you either go back and get serious about getting sober and get help, or I'm going to take Chase away from you. And man, I was angry. I was angry. And so wow. I hung up the phone. I didn't know what to say. Yeah. You know, Chase was really the only thing I felt like I had left Chase and Morgan and you know, Chase was with me all the time. And so now my mom's telling me she's going to take the last thing I've got left in my life. And so I knew, I knew that night that I needed to make a decision of what I was going to do. And, you know, sitting here clear headed today, of course that's an easy decision, but actively involved in alcoholism and, and where I was at the time, it was not a clear decision. And, after thinking about it and thinking that uh, there was no way that I could possibly live without alcohol and also convincing myself that Chase would be better off without me and better at my mom's house, I called her back and told her to come to Savannah and get him. And that's how powerful, that's how powerful addiction had grabbed onto me that I actually chose alcohol over my own child. Wow. Yep. I never thought that I would ever in a million years, you know, say that because I'm the type of man that says that I put my family, you know, first and, and that I'm going to, you know, I'd take a bullet for my family. And I've always meant that. But if I'm being honest, would I really, you know, I mean, would I really at the point, at that point, you know, I chose, I chose alcohol over my own child instead of going to get help. And so my mom showed up in Savannah down to that hotel and 
I hugged Chase and I gave him a, a kiss and told him, I said, I love you, son. I said, you're going to go stay with your Mimi for a little while while I get everything sorted out and I'll be back to get you. And he said, I know dad. He said, I love you too. And he left, they pulled out of that parking lot. And that's an image that is etched in my brain forever. Is my son who was 12 years old at the time looking out the window of his grandmother's car as they pulled out of the parking lot, looking at me standing in the parking lot. And I sent him off with her. And I went back upstairs and proceeded to drink harder than I have drank in my entire life for several days. And then on July the 22nd, 2003, I woke up that morning in that hotel. And I thought to myself, you know, Patrick, you have been dishonest with everybody around you about what goes on in your head, what goes on in your heart. But most importantly, you've been dishonest with yourself. And I thought these people that helped me when I first went off to treatment and I've had clergy, you know, reach out to help me. I've had mental health professionals. I've had, uh, you know, every, every tool given to me, that you could possibly need or want. I just refused to open the toolbox and use them. And so I made a commitment that morning, July 22nd. I said, I'm going to do something that I've never done. And that's be honest with myself and be honest with everybody else that's trying to help me. And if I do those two things and it helps me and I get my life back on track and I get sober, then that'll be fantastic. If I'm being honest with myself and being honest with others helping me and it doesn't work, then I'll just go back to drinking and I'll let it play out however it's going to play out, either by drinking myself to death or by ultimately end up killing myself with my own hand. And what I have found out, Randy, is by trusting the people that have been in the hole and allowing them to show me the way out, and being honest with them and being honest with myself and not, not picking up a drink of alcohol, even on bad days. Um, I haven't, I haven't found it necessary to have a drink of alcohol since that morning of July 22nd, 2003. So it's over 16 years and it has been, it has been the best journey. I, if I would have wrote down on July 22nd, 2003 on a piece of paper, what my wildest dreams in life were, um, I would have sold myself short. I have had so many things happen to me um, that have been positive that I'm, I just, I, sometimes I can't even wrap my head around it. Now, do I still have bad days? Absolutely. I'm human. You know, 13 years sober, I almost threw in the towel and thought to myself, you know, the heck with it. I'm going to get drunk. I just had a bunch of stuff going on in, in my personal life and uh, my professional life and thought to myself, you know what? I know how to slow the wheels down. So I'm still human. What I didn't do was I didn't act on that. I opened up my toolbox and I pulled out a tool. And that tool was pick up the phone and call somebody and tell them what's going on in your head. Be honest with them. And I was able to make it through. Well, now, now, <clears throat> You have you have uh, successfully remained sober for more than thirteen years, and you credit that with with um, 
you know, being able to understand what treatment is about and who to turn to. Let's talk about what's going on now. Um, I was very fortunate to be invited to come down to Augusta, Georgia, uh, by yourself and, and Cliff Richards, the, the president of Hale Foundation. And um, I met with you, I met with uh, Cliff, and, and saw some amazing uh, plans for the future to help first responders. And that's Valor Station. Let's talk about Valor Station, and let's talk about the challenges that are facing uh, this endeavor. Okay. Yeah, so um, Cliff Richards has been a good friend of mine and a mentor uh, during my whole time of sobriety. Um, Cliff is, is one of the men that uh, had been in the hole and had told me, you know, I know a way out. Let me show you. Let me show you. Let me show you the way out, what I did. And so he, along with uh, a handful of other men, were very instrumental in, in helping me get sober. And so after uh, Cliff had retired from his uh, full-time profession in the aviation business, he, um, he had taken on for a good friend, uh, the Hell Foundation, who one of his good friends had founded it and had asked um, Cliff if he would take over. And so Cliff did, and that was probably, uh, gosh, well over 10 years ago. And he became the president and CEO of the Hale Foundation, H-A-L-E. I know with my Southern accent, a lot of people think that I'm saying hell a lot. Of <laughs> and, 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 and describe what the Hale Foundation does. So what they do is they help men with alcohol and drug addiction, 18 years old and older. They are a, a long-term uh, substance abuse recovery program. So your men that show up to the Hell Foundation um, are people like me that needed extended help. Like in July 2003, when I asked for help again, I ended up going to a place like the Hell Foundation called the Hickey House in uh, the North Georgia mountains that was a uh, six-month program. And so it's, it's for people that need, you know, that extended, you know, boost and, so people that check into the Hale Foundation, which it's called the, under the Hale Foundation, it's called the Hale House. There's five different houses in downtown Augusta in the Old Town District. And they check in and stay anywhere from six to 12 months. And it just helps acclimate them back into uh, society and learn how to live sober without being locked up in a facility. You're still in the public. You're still out going to work and dealing with people. But you've got like a home base, if you will, where you go back to that sober community every evening and it's like you recharge your batteries so you can go back out the next day and face the world. And that's exactly what I needed in 2003. Sure. So that's what the Hell, that's what the Hell Foundation currently does. Now, they do, they, they do not have a traditional treatment center or a detox center, they have to send people if they need to go to inpatient treatment or to detox, they have to send somebody uh, to a facility first before they come to their long-term program. So they had a benefactor that had discovered that a, a nun's convent in Augusta, Georgia, that sits on 20 of the most beautiful acres in the city, 
had come up for sale because the nuns were moving across the Savannah River to the other side of the river on a bigger piece of property to build a new facility. And so when this benefactor of the Hale Foundation saw this and knew that the Hale Foundation had been interested in starting a treatment center, they, uh, the benefactor purchased this piece of property from the nuns and gave it free and clear to the Hale Foundation. And I had seen that in the news and I, you know, knowing Cliff Richards and uh, some other uh, men that are involved in the Hale Foundation, I knew that what their plan was and I thought it was a great idea. Of course, in my busy life, I didn't really uh, spend much time looking into anything else until one day I saw on the news that the city of Augusta's county commission had to vote for the zoning for this treatment center for this former convent to be turned into a treatment center and the commission was split in half as far as the ones being in favor and the ones being opposed and so it ultimately ended up not passing and I thought to myself, I had a light bulb moment that day when I saw that on the news. I was sitting in my man cave and I thought to myself, wait a minute, if that is not passed and they've got this great piece of property, I wonder if they would be interested in making this a first responder only treatment center because I've looked, I've looked across the country and I couldn't find one. I have found lots of civilian treatment centers that have first responder tracks at the civilian treatment center. I found lots of treatment centers or not lots, but I found a handful of treatment centers that are for first responders and military, but I have not found one specifically for police, fire, EMS and dispatchers. And so I called Cliff Richards and I said, what are y'all going to do with this property now that it hadn't been zoned? And he said, we're more than likely going to sell it. And I said, would you be interested in uh, letting me and Andy Carrier, he's the uh, director of the office of public, the office of public safety support in Georgia, which you know, Andy, um, ask Cliff if he would be interested in uh, allowing me and Andy to come address the board of directors for the health foundation and tell them about a, uh, a much needed thing and uh, that being a first responder treatment center. And so we did, and they were absolutely blown away to discover that there's not facilities like this all around the country. The thing that I saw on the news that night when I discovered it had not moved forward with the zoning request was that there's a neighborhood that you have to go through to get to the 20 acres. The 20 acres sits at the top of a hill behind the neighborhood and there was uh, the majority of the neighborhood that was opposing a treatment center going to the back of the neighborhood on, on that 20 acres where the convent is. And their two main concerns were they didn't want people that were alcoholics and drug addicts um, coming in to their neighborhood and not knowing who's coming. And, you know, I can't argue with them about that. I really can't. I mean, I'm in recovery, but I can't say that, you know, that's not a valid concern. And the other issue was they didn't want increased traffic coming through their neighborhood to get to the property. So 
I knew, and that's one of the things that Andy Carrier and I told Cliff and the board of directors of the Hale Foundation is those two main concerns the neighborhood has can be addressed um, completely. Number one, by knowing who's coming to your neighborhood, the men and women in public safety that need help, those are the ones that are going to be coming to your neighborhood. People just like myself that voluntarily left work sought help were gone for a period of time and then came back and was integrated back into the job that's the type of people that you'll have and number two we knew that the 20 acres butted up to state property where the augusta technical college is on the other side of the neighborhood and we went to uh one of our legislators that we uh, have a good relationship with and that is very supportive of first responders, Representative Jody Lott in Georgia, and asked her if she would introduce a bill to allow the state to give the Health Foundation an easement off that state property to put in a new driveway coming off state property from the college and then permanently closing off the driveway coming through the neighborhood. And she was on board 100%. She actually already introduced that bill. And it's passed through the uh, House in Georgia. And it's waiting to uh, get voted on through the Senate in Georgia. And once that's done, the Health Foundation will have a new entrance. So both of the concerns of the neighborhood have been addressed. But unfortunately, you still have some. We've won some over in the neighborhood now that they know it's first responders. But unfortunately, you still have some that don't support it at all. They say that they support it being a religious facility or an educational facility, but not anything to do with mental health or substance abuse, even if it is first responders. And so we have some commissioners that are supporting uh, those neighbors. And so we're still in a fight for this. We're in a fight to you know see this pass. There's 10 commissioners and you have to have a majority, which is six. And we feel comfortable that we do have six that support this, but it doesn't go to a vote until the first uh, of July. So how can my listeners get involved? How can they support this? Well, the biggest thing right now is following the Facebook page that the Hale Foundation has set up, and it's Supporters of Valor Station. Supporters of Valor Station is a Facebook group. And the Hale Foundation and some other supporters, such as myself, Andy Carrier, and um, uh, different ones, uh, will post things that we're doing, such as an open house that we recently had. We had a uh, community open house, not only for the supporters, but the opponents uh, that you know wanted to learn more about this. Unfortunately, we didn't have many people that oppose it come to learn the facts and, and talk to the first responders, but we did have a few. And, you know, when it goes to the Senate right now with everything being on hold in our country, you know, I don't know when they're going to pick back up with this. But when it goes to the Senate, we're going to need people uh, to reach out to these senators in the state of Georgia and let them know that, you know, how important it is that they vote for this easement. And then once we go to the vote in July, we're going to need people to help reach out and, and support us with the uh, vote going to the county commission. So by going to the Facebook page, Supporters of Valor Station, um, they can stay up with the, with the needs and, 
and um, you can communicate to them uh, what what they can do to help. Absolutely, and I would encourage anyone that goes to that page to please uh, not only join the group, but there's an invite button and invite any first responders that they know or families of first responders or just supporters of first responders to join the group as well. Because once the Hale Foundation opens the doors there, and we feel confident that it's going to uh, uh, get passed, and once the doors are open, we want people around the country to know that Valor Station is there for our men and women of public safety, and that there is a place not only for substance abuse, but for so many other things, you know, suicidal ideations or attempts, um, PTSD. It will be a full medical facility with a medical director, a clinical director. It will have um, RNs on staff 24-7. So this will be a full facility for any type of issue that our brothers and sisters are dealing with. Well, I... Uh, we're running out of time, uh, but I want to say this, that uh, uh, this is an endeavor worth all of our support. Our law enforcement community, our first responder community is desperately in need of Valor Station. And uh, the work that you're doing, both as a, as a law enforcement officer, um, as the uh, Southern States uh, Police Benevolent Association uh, representative, uh, you're you're doing you're doing uh, the Lord's work, man. Uh, you really are, and uh, and you and and Cliff are committed to the men and women of the uh, first responder community. So I want to thank you for taking the time to to come onto the show and to talk about this uh, really critical issue. And uh, we all need to support Valor Station. Uh, go to supporters of Valor Station on Facebook and get involved. Uh, so once again, uh, I really appreciate Pat, not only your, your, uh, endeavors, but, uh, uh, everything you're doing for the, for the law enforcement community. Thank you so much, Randy. We appreciate your support and, and look forward to uh, a lot of years of partnering, partnering together and, uh, helping a lot of our brothers and sisters, man. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks again. So I've got to tell you guys about a product, and it is a product that um, I've started using, and uh, i got to tell you, I was very hesitant, because just, you know, with my background as a law enforcement officer, anything involving CBD I've always shied away from, but I was, uh, I was approached by a um, re retired uh, New York City police lieutenant who is in the business, CBD Products. And he explained to me a lot more about it than I ever knew. Now, I've talked to people that have used CBD products before, and, and they rave about them. Until he was cognizant of the fact that this was the best product on the market, he'd done a tremendous amount of research. So you know what? I started using a couple of the products. And i, I got to tell you, I am shocked at the results. I, I'm liking what I am seeing and what I'm feeling. So check it out. It's luxvitecbd.com. That's L-U-X-V-I-T-E-C-B-D dot or luxvitecbd.com.
if you love coffee as much as I love coffee, in fact, even if you don't love it as much as I do, but you like it, Law Dog Coffee Company is the newest and the greatest coffee company to come along in a long time. Now, all right, I admit I'm a little prejudiced because Law Dog Coffee is a major sponsor of the Wounded Blue. They actually donate 15% of their revenue to the Wounded Blue. This coffee company is uh, is law enforcement uh, based. It supports law enforcement. But most importantly, the coffee is amazing. So go to lawdogcoffee.com. It was one word, lawdogcoffee.com. Thanks for joining me again on Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement, here on the America Out Loud Network. We try to bring you the latest news and information about the American law enforcement officer. Thanks again. This is Randy Sutton.